In wrapping it up, I want to just quickly summarize just kind of where we've been over the last several weeks. And if you want to follow along in your um, index, what is this thing called? My chart, the chart that we put on pages eight and nine in your Bible study book. We're just going to kind of fly through it real quick, and then we're going to settle down in chapter six um, so, so that we can spend a little bit of time there before we leave today. In the first week, we talked about the fact that, that uh, we are saints. Becoming a saint is what we talked about. That, that we opened it up right at the beginning, as Paul introduced us, right at the beginning to this idea of adoption, that we are so blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with spiritual blessings. We overflow with spiritual blessings. They are, they're coming out the top. We can't possibly contain all of the blessings to which we are blessed. We are blessed, we have these blessings as children who are adopted into God's family. To imagine that we have been, that we have been chosen, that he saw us, he, know, he knew our name, called our name, and called us from where we were as hopeless, helpless, homeless <laughs> street urchins. And he, and he called our name and pulled us into his own household, into his own family. And there we receive one after the other after the other of blessings that we receive because we are children of the king. We are blessed. We, we, Paul, the apostle, was, was clicking them off in verses 3 to 14. Remember how I showed you that verses 3 to 14 are one long sentence. It's one sentence. Paul didn't take a breath. He didn't take a break. He didn't stop for coffee. He, he just was running through this beautiful list of God's blessings. One of them being, in the next section, we find out this idea of power. There's a power that is available to us. Just as uh, if you think about um, power families that, that you know of, where a certain name, if, if you can walk into a restaurant or walk into any place of service, any place where you might be served, and bring out a power name, a powerful name, you know, you're going to get whatever table you want, you know, you can, you, you, things are going to get done, things are going to happen. We are children of the King. The, our Abba Father has ultimate power, and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom we were introduced in that first chapter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are constantly giving us these wonderful gifts, and they are inherent in their power. That is the kind of power that we have available to us because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We, I don't think we think often enough, and I don't think we, we, we use the kind of power that we have often enough as we truly begin to believe the power that's available to us as part of the power family, the family of God. In chapter 2, uh, we... Paul told us all about the church and kind of how the building blocks of the church work together. That, that all of us, um, we are, whether we are Jew or Gentile now, the doors of the kingdom have flown wide open and the kingdom now, God's house, is open, absolutely available to everyone and this is the church. And as we become part of it, we become part of the church and not just sitting in the pews, taking a break, watching everybody else do stuff kind of church, but we're part of it. We're part and parcel of the construction, the fabric, the makeup of the church, so that, so that our participation, without our participation, there would be a little something missing. Paul described us as God's masterpiece, that we are God's masterpiece, and that part of his, the, the, the finishing work, the creating work, the redeeming work of his own creative efforts are made through us 
We get to participate in that creative effort. We become co-creators then. As we learn about our gift and bring our gift to the party and bring our contribution to the guest of honor, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, as we are able to do that, then finally the church finishes that, that, that final punch list where all of the construction, all of the creation comes into place. We're part of that. And in week four, we talked about the family, what it is to be part of the family, what it is to, to know the family secrets, to start to understand the family mysteries and secrets, the kind of things that only we understand because we're part of the family. I also called that section homeschooling. <laughs> we are homeschooled by God as part of the benefits of being born and, and brought into this wonderful family is that we are homeschooled. We have the very finest education. Paul loves using words like insight, revelation, understanding, knowledge. We, we come to understand and see the world from God's perspective as children of God. We've just run through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Remember, the first three chapters were all classroom work. They were stuff that we were learning, vocabulary that we were building, concepts that we were understanding. Uh, in the first three chapters, he didn't give us any imperative verbs. He didn't boss us around or tell us what to do. We were there in the classroom learning about the fabric and the makeup of who we are and who God is. And then the second three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, then he starts to lay on us the commands. Do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. Now that you know who you are, now that you know that you're adopted into God's family, now we're going to start to talk about what it means to act that way, to, to invest our beliefs so deeply into our hearts and in our minds that they start to show up in our hands and our feet and our mouths even and, and our eyes and our ears, that, that our bodies begin to behave and act out the truth that we are God's chosen, precious, adored, loved, cherished children. As children of God, we can afford to be kind and humble and generous and patient. We can afford to, to be kind with one another because we don't have to be right about everything. We don't have to be always, always, always proven right or on the winning side of every argument, do we? We can afford humility. We can afford grace because grace has been poured out on us. And so we learn a new way of walking in the world, W-A-L-K. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The words that come straight out of the chute in chapter 4 are humility, patience, grace, kindness. This now becomes our M-O. This now is how we behave in the world. When we learn to discern and discover and find the elements of our character that were part of our old character, who we used to be before Christ. We identify those things and we gently remove them from our, from our lifestyle. And then we begin to put on more new things. We don't just take off the old stuff, but we put on the new stuff and we, and we create, we co-create with God a brand new character in our lives by virtue of who we are, because of what, is, what God has done for us, and then the simple practice, practice, practice of walking, putting one foot in front of the other and, and behaving in such a way that is consistent with exactly who we are, our nature. 
Paul teaches us how to walk. He continues to give us walking lessons. In the beginning of chapter 5, he says, imitate the Father. Just do what Abba does. Watch God and do what God does. Watch Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We can observe his behavior in the Gospels, in our scriptures, through the letters, as people who met Jesus and knew Jesus describe what, what his character is to us. And we begin to put these things on, and we begin to wear them and walk in them. We learn how to behave ourselves in all kinds of situations. And when it comes to the family, we... we Paul decided to take a special passage of scripture and, and describe exactly the way we behave within our marriage relationships and within our parenting relationships. Because in all of the world, as we learn to live consistently with who we are, the one place we cannot fake it is in our homes with our spouses and our children and our grandchildren, the people who observe us day in and day out on good days and bad days, they're there. They don't leave. They're there, right? Like, are you still here? Sometimes I think to my husband, are you still here? But they're there day in and day out. And in that way, those relationships are the most trying, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, this is where they're tried. This is where they are tested. As we, in humility and grace, submit, put the needs, the desires, the agenda of other people above our own, as we learn to think of ourselves not first, not primary, not utmost, but we learn to think of the, of the needs of others above our own. That's what Jesus did. The Bible says to imitate Christ, and that is exactly how Christ lived when he came. He put all of our needs above his own to the extent that he went to the cross and died on the cross for our needs. That's our model. That's the one whom we're trying to imitate. That's the way we're trying to live. And we're learning to do that. It doesn't come naturally to us, so it's not necessarily easy for us. But as we imitate God and we learn to walk in wisdom, walk in light, walk in love, then, just as it happens one foot in front of the other, we become like Christ. We have learned how to love each other, submit to each other, be humble, joyful, um, patient, kind. We are learning all of that, and those are becoming part of our character. And now, as we get to chapter 6 and verse 10, we find the Apostle Paul. Um, I just want to remind you, that as he's writing this letter, he is uh, in prison in Rome. It would have been an underground, no windows, filthy, stinky, um, cold, damp place. And there he is probably um, chained either to the wall or maybe just to a Roman guard. He would have um, had many opportunities to observe the armor that a Roman soldier would wear into battle. He would have had long, long conversations with men fully armed in battle gear as they would have been the kind of people who would have been watching over him under his arrest, in his state of arrest. And here we, we see him. He's going to pull those, those elements of battle, 
those elements of the armor, and he's going to pull them out, and he's going to assign a spiritual meaning to them. And it is precious to watch, precious to see. Because he's writing to these people who live in Ephesus, um, a city that is right now at the time of this writing undergoing a little bit of persecution. Um, We don't know exactly how heavy the persecution was at the exact time of this writing, but here's what we know that they didn't know. It was about to get worse. And in the next 30, 40, 50 years, the people who are believers, the followers of Jesus living in Ephesus and the region around them would be under severe persecution in the coming years. They, their children, and the other people that they would bring in as followers of the way and introduce to church and introduce to the kingdom of God and the people who would become convinced in the next 10 or so years that you're a child of God, just like we've been telling each other for the last several weeks. You're adopted into God's family. It's good, good, good news. But sadly, within the culture that they were living at the time, it was not necessarily legal, or at least in the coming years. It was about to get really ugly under under Nero, who would be the next emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was going to make things really, really hard on the believers. Paul, whether it was a, a, a message that he got, a revelation that he got straight from God, or whether he was addressing that particular situation right now, he decided to close his letter like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's be real. The struggle is real. Let's be real. The struggle is real. He was speaking to, he was writing into this, into this city of Ephesus, who, as I, as I said, are undergoing a certain measure of persecution. Um, but also this city, uh, if, you, if you take another run, which you might want to do in the coming weeks through Acts chapter 19 and 20, this is where the story is located in the story of Acts of Paul's time in in Ephesus, you will find that spiritual warfare was something that was very, very real to them. They were experiencing it on a day-to-day basis. Um, They believed in demons. They believed in angels. They believed in powers, in, in powerful beings that lived outside the realm of what is available to our five senses. In other words, there are Things There are powers that we can't see, smell, taste, touch, hear. It's not available to the five senses that we have available to us to, to experience the world around us. They're very, very, very real. In fact, they're eternally real. And, and it's, it's, very, uh, it's, a, it's a world of warfare, and it's a world of battle. And it's real even if it's not available to our senses. I have to reiterate this, and I have to say this over and over again, in our modern American culture, because sometimes I think we've outgrown it a little bit, right? It's like, oh, please. 
don't talk to me about demons and angels and stuff. I'm just, you know, I'm all grown up. I'm not into that. I, I think that that's probably, and that's for fairy tales and that's for stories and that's for books, but, but I don't know, you know, it's, I, I, I feel like if I can't take it to a lab and reproduce it and prove it, then I'm done with it. I'm out with it. Is that right? Are we all grown up? You'll find if, you, if you've done any mission work, um, uh, if you've, if you've done, I've been at all to a third world country, they see it. They talk about it. They acknowledge it. It's very real. So really quickly, let me just run you through a little bit of history. Actually, quite a lot of history <laughs> um, in terms of time. That there was a time, and we don't know when because we don't have any of this documented, but there was a, what we're going to call time, and I have to do this, um, because it was before the creation of the world. Before uh, not only our earth was created, but everything when we look out into the night sky, all of those sparkly dots, before any of that was created, God created legions of beings, and he called them angels. Angels were created. They are created beings. They aren't eternal God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternal. God is eternal. But at one point or another, this many, many, many legions of, of creatures came into being. They are angels. And then there was a point um, at which one of these angels, his name is Lucifer, he rebelled against God. He decided that he wanted to be like God and that he thought he could do God's job better than God. And so he led a rebellion, and there was a huge number, although it was a finite number, but, but a certain number and a large number of angels followed Lucifer and fell from heaven. And these angels are now what we refer to as demons. Angels, I told you that they weren't eternal beings. There was a point at which they were created, but they never die. Once created, they live forever. So they will always be. They live into eternity. They, the ones who sided with Satan, they fell with him, and they live in a state of rebellion against God, along with their leader, Satan. Those powerful beings, they are powerful. They do have power but their power is finite. It's not infinite. And they have the power to work on behalf of their boss, their leader, Satan, who wants to destroy us. We do have an enemy. The struggle is real. The angels that didn't rebel, by far the majority of angels who did not rebel and go with Satan are God's angels. They are also eternal beings, and once they were created, they live forever. Another interesting point about angels is that at that juncture, at that juncture, the juncture, the, the, the time of the rebellion, they had what, what seems to have been free will in that some of them chose, they made a choice to follow the enemy, but once that choice was made, they can't go back. So there is this reality of real life, that lives in a realm beyond what we can access by our senses. But I think if we put our heads together 
We started telling stories around the table. We know, we know down deep in our knowers that it's not only real, but that reality, eternal reality, is far more substantial than even our temporary reality that we have here. We cannot ignore the presence of the enemy. We cannot pretend like he doesn't exist. We can't act like he's no big deal. But we do know this. We win. In fact, God has already won the battle. It is already passed, and Satan knows. He knows that, that his time with us each is limited to the time we're here on the planet. He knows that his time is limited in terms of the cosmic plan of God, that one day when Jesus returns, he will be finished, and all of the legion of demons will be finished, done, thrown into the fire or however you want to think about it. I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but it's over for them. It's over. We are all ready on the victorious side, and the victory is already ours. Please remember that Satan is not an equal with God. They aren't equals. Satan was an angel. He never had the hierarchy. He never had the power. He never had the position that God has. But he and his demons are doing their best to work away in our lives, to present obstacles and difficulties for us to come to know who we are. The, the main weapon that we have, the main weapon that Satan has in his arsenal is lies. Lies, lies, lies. It's the lies we believe about ourselves, the lies that we believe about the world, the lies that we believe about God, and that is why when Paul begins to describe the armor, the armor that we have when we walk into battle is the belt of truth right across our middle. That the first thing we put on is truth. The very first part of our armory is to know what is true and what is a lie. This is why it's wonderful if we can start our day in the Word of God. But absolutely just as wonderful, by the way, if you, if you, I don't care if you do your devotions in the middle of the day or at the end of the day, or if you're talking to God beginning, middle, end, at two in the morning, whatever. But that the foundation of our lives as we walk forward into this, into every single day, we put one foot in front of the other and we walk into every single day, is that we have the belt of truth. It means that we are constantly taking healthy doses of truth from Scripture as it is discussed and shared among us in our tables, in our, with our friendships, in the, in, the, in the context of the community of God's people, in the family of God, that we know what is true. We will know what is true the same way we learn absolutely anything else. Repetition, repetition, repetition. That we don't just take one dose of truth, read through the Bible and go, good, I'm good to go, I've got it. It takes more than that, doesn't it? Because we forget. We have to remind ourselves. We put on the belt of truth. There it is. Verse 12. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, standing. Having fastened on the belt of truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given to the gospel, given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which is with you, which, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The belt of truth being the, 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 the foundational piece of our armor, and on top of it rests the breastplate of righteousness. Um, so many times when Satan attacks, I told you that he uses lies. That's his favorite weapon. And particularly, his lies are going to be aimed at our identity. You're no good. Remember this. Remember that. Remember the other thing. You remember where you've been and what you've done. And Satan will tell us, you're not worthy. You're not worth it. You're not um, good enough. And our defense is truth. And the truth is that we are righteous. We are holy. We are saints. You like my halo? <laughs> We're saints. Not because of anything that we have done to earn or deserve our sainthood, but because God, who is perfectly holy, has chosen us and called us and brought us into his family and sat us at the dinner table where our, where our name is on a place card right there at the banqueting table. He's brought us to the family and said, I've been thinking of you. I've prepared for you. You are mine. And by that and by that alone, we are righteous. But we have to remind ourselves and each other about this all the time or else we'll forget. And the enemy will come in and try to remind us, you're not righteous. You're not holy. This is who you are. We must constantly refuse to listen to the enemy and to listen to God's truth. As we begin to believe it, ladies, then it will start to show up in our behaviors. We begin to live out by actions and habits and lifestyle, the way we converse with others, what comes out our mouths. We're like, whoa, I didn't expect that. I, five years ago, I would have spoken very different words in a situation like this. But we begin to see this transformation happen because God is making his home in our heart. On top of the breastplate of righteousness then, after the breastplate of righteousness, our, our feet, we wear, on our, we wear footwear on our feet. The readiness of the gospel of peace. You think about a soldier the most powerful soldier in history, regardless of the army to which he belonged, regardless of, of the money that was behind him, regardless of the resources that were behind him, the most powerful soldier in history is the soldier that was defending his own home. If he's defending his own home, if he's defending his own family, the foundation of that home needs to be peace. If a soldier is rooted, is, if his feet stand strong on a foundation of peace and, and the lack of fear, the lack of anxiety that comes with being part of the household of God, that's a powerful soldier. Don't forget that the gospel, the good news, is a gospel. It's a message of peace. We can have peace with God. And we can have peace with each other. 
this reconciliation between ourselves and God is something that takes place only because of the good news of the gospel. This readiness to spread the gospel, to share the gospel, that is a threat that the de- it makes the devil shake and quake. He's very fearful when we start to walk around and talk about peace with our friends. When we start to, to um, share the idea that, that actual anxiety is something that we don't have to have as children of God. We can put away our fears, the fears that, that are so often become the foundation of behavior that is, and that, that's, that's against what God would teach us. Because it's a foundation of fear from which our lies, spinning the truth, uh, making ourselves look better than we are, that, that all of these anxious um, thoughts become sinful behavior in the same way peaceful truth, the, the peace of God's truth becomes behavior that makes God proud. I better stop preaching and move on to the next one. The shield of faith. We have acknowledged it and we've come to understand it that we're living in enemy territory. We are, um, well, C.S. Lewis says it this way, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. We are living in enemy-occupied territory, but the true king has landed. That means that we will be under enemy fire. We will receive the... We will be targets, I should say that. We will be targets of of the enemy. And even though we're under attack, we have a shield of faith. That means the foundation of our beliefs. They will come in the form of insults. They will come in the form of temptation. They will come in the form of lies that we will consider believing. But we have a shield of our faith, of our belief. We've read the end of the story and we know how it's going to end. We know who wins. With this shield of faith, we also have a helmet of salvation. A helmet of salvation is the intellectual protection of knowing and believing the truth. We can protect our minds. Um, If you are raising or have raised children, you know that much of, of, of your efforts, much of what you're trying to do in terms of boundaries and rules for your household is to protect the minds of our children because if they, if they hear these messages that the world sends to them and if they believe the messages that the world sends their way, that is when they begin to be in danger. That's when they begin to wobble on their feet. But if we can, if we can provide a helmet of salvation... This truth repeated over and over again that I'm precious, I'm saved, I'm in the kingdom, I'm in God's family. It is past tense, it is finished, it is done. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation and there is nothing we can do to put our salvation in danger. That is something that is given us and it it protects us, it protects our minds. The helmet of salvation. 
Finally, we take up the sword of the Spirit. The sword is the only offensive weapon in our arsenal. It is the only thing we use to fight back. It is God's word. As God's word hides in our hearts, that is the powerful weapon that we have to remove and to send a, an injury to the enemy. The only way that we can cause harm to the enemy is to pull out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. As we learn to use all of our weapons, as the Word of the Spirit makes its home in our hearts and then it becomes something that we can use outside, and then we have all of our defensive weapons and they're all in place and we're all covered up and we're all protected from head all the way down to the bottom of our feet. We are protected. We can go out into the world knowing that we're safe. You can't hurt us. You can't touch us. The enemy is real. The enemy is powerful. The enemy is present. But we can't be touched. We are absolutely secure in God's family. Then we can feel safe enough to be ourselves. Then we can feel safe enough to become exactly who God has called us to be, to grow up to all the fullness of the stature of Christ. I would ask that you take each one of these pieces of armor. If you didn't, especially if you didn't have a chance to get to your Bible study this week, go back and do this one. Think of each one. And as you stand there in the morning, even stand there before you walk out of your house in the morning and look in the mirror and just picture all of it, all in place, from your head to the bottom of your feet, dressed in the truth of who God says we are, you will be ready for absolutely anything. Paul closes his section like this. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then right away, he goes straight into verse, this is 18. I've got, so, I've got it so marked up, I can't even read it. I think this is verse 18. Praying at all times. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and all supplication to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance and making supplication for all the saints. Prayer. And this, those are the last green boxes in my text. Those are the last positive imperatives that we pray and pray and pray. That we pray all the time for all the saints. That we constantly are living in this awareness that God's right here, that he's right here, and that we can talk to him, and that he would want to listen to us, that he would hear what we have to say, and that we can constantly be interacting with God in this ongoing conversation. I can't, when I, even when I teach it, it's hard for me to believe the privilege that is ours, that we get to talk straight to God. I, I don't know if you, uh, here's, I work, in a, I work in a big church. This is, this is my church. I've been here for 18 years, actually, on this staff. And I, if I needed to talk with any of our pastors, I would have to make an appointment. 
okay? There are about 30 of us here. And I, I couldn't just walk down the hall and expect to walk into the office of any of them and go, hey, I need a few minutes, you know? Sometimes it works out that way, and it's really awesome when it does. But, but generally speaking, the, these are busy people. We, ladies, we can walk straight into God's office, right into the Holy of Holies, stand right in front of the throne room of grace and say, I'm in need. I forgot who I am. Remind me who I am. I forgot my name. Would you please remind me of my name? Help me to know my nature. Help me to know my character. I, I'm weak out here. I'm injured. I, I've been hurt or I'm, I need help. And God is right there to pay attention to us. God is right. That is the privilege we have as his children. One of the iconic photographs you might remember from President Kennedy's time in office is a picture of President Kennedy sitting there in the Oval Office at that majestic desk. And underneath the desk is one of his sons. Who was it? I can't even... Is it, who it should? Peeking out the door from underneath the desk of the Oval Office. Like there's... The, the babies always get to come in. The children always have full rights to barge straight in to the most important, most powerful place on the planet. That is us with Abba Father. God says, pray. Don't forget that we have an ongoing conversation here. God is the one who initiated this conversation. He started it. We think that sometimes we start prayer. <laughs> Isn't that funny? When we say, dear God, or dear Jesus, like, like I'm going to, oh, wait a second, I need to take a few minutes out of my busy day. Um, <laughs> dear God, and we think we've started something. God approached us. He initiated a conversation with us. He walked across a room making eye contact with us, arm outstretched to us long before we ever even thought about him. And every time we go to prayer, we're responding. We're responding to the call he's already put on our life. We are never the initiators. We're always the ones who, when we have a few moments in our busy schedule, stop and attend to this conversation. Responding, listening, talking, listening. As we go through this life of God, we are privileged to be able to call on God's attention and then as, as you do in polite conversation, you stop and listen. Prayer. Listening and speaking. Listening and speaking. Paul has shown us, not just taught us as a, like a life coach, but actually has demonstrated prayer throughout Ephesians. As we catch him in chapter 1, in chapter 3, he just suddenly starts praying. He doesn't give us any warning. He doesn't say, bow your heads, please. He just starts talking to God. And he's shown us how to do that. I hope that you've been paying attention to this wonderful life coach. And I hope that we now, maybe more than we were six, eight weeks ago, that we're practiced in prayer. We're going to close this way today. 
we're going to gather around this morning and pray. I want to pray morning, afternoon. It's been a long day. And I want to particularly have Ruana come on up here, sweetie. I would like for you to come up. We're going to say a closing prayer. We're going to focus this prayer um, partly on Ruana. And I, I don't know how aware of, of all of this you are. Do you want the microphone? No? Okay. Um, but Ruana's been having a struggle here and there with her health. Um, and most recently, over the weekend, she's had trouble with her eyes, um, losing sight, actually, in one of her eyes. And so we're going to get this figured out mm -hmm. as far as medically, but we're going to ask for the presence of God, uh, Abba Father, to, to be on her particularly. I think it will get really crowded if we gather up here. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to just put your hand forward. Mm -hmm. Just put Thank your you. hand forward right Thank up you. here toward Ruana. And um, let's pray for her, and this will also be our closing prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask God that you would be with my sister, Ruana. We are so grateful for this woman's hard work and clear passion to gather women around the Word of God. And we know that none of us would be here right now the way we are if it weren't for Ruana and her hard, hard work. We know that she loves you and she adores you. We also know that she talks to you on a very regular basis. So this is not the first time you've heard about this. <laughs> but God, we ask that you would um, just make a special visitation of your spirit on Ruana's spirit, that your spirit would call out to her spirit and say, healed, whole, well, blessed, that she would believe this about her own self and her own body. And we know that you are intimately familiar, not only with her soul and her spirit, but every um, little part of her body. And you know exactly what is going on that is causing this discomfort and this sense of um, unease, dis-ease within her body. We know that it, you know exactly what it is, and you know exactly what can be done. We pray, Father, for your divine healing on her body. We ask for you to do the work. We know you also have wonderful servants in physicians and nurses and the medical community community that you to whom you have given so much of your insight and capacity and ability um, but we're asking also father that we would be all impressed and completely celebrate the healing that Ruana experiences in her body through your divine hand in Jesus powerful name we pray it amen